Good afternoon. Welcome to uh, the Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Um, I'm your host, Jackie Kettler, and I'm here with my co-host today, Luke Fowler, who's running the boards. Uh, yes, and I'm doing it unsupervised today, so if you hear any like <laughs> loud crashes or silence or anything... Everything's all right. Like Wayne's going to come running down the hall and he'll make sure that we don't burn down the building. So Luke will be chiming in when possible today. Um, but we're thrilled to be joined with, by Nisha Bellinger today, who, like us, is a, another colleague at the School of Public Service at Boise State. So welcome, Nisha. Thank you for having me. So one weakness of the show is we tend to focus a lot on national and local politics. None of your regular co-hosts have any expertise in international politics. So Nisha's is joining us today to talk about some international political trends, which will be great to kind of broaden our topics that we usually cover. Um, so Nisha, what are some key trends happening in democracies across the globe? So... Uh, uh, there's so many things happening, one of them being um, that we see uh, several democracies around the world sort of um, the quality of, of democracy is in decline. So what's happening is you have countries that have elections, but they're not necessarily free and fair elections. Um, so the notion of democratic backsliding comes in. So this is what we refer to when we say democracies have elections, but they aren't free and fair. Uh, there's a crackdown by leaders on opposition forces. Uh, the executive branches are made stronger at the expense of the other branches of government. So this idea of democratic backsliding, is it something that you're working on some research on currently? Uh, yes, I'm working on uh, the consequences of that for health outcomes uh, globally. But more recently, uh, my colleague at George Mason University and I wrote a piece in The Conversation uh, that looks at the consequences of democratic backsliding uh, for economic outcomes. The Conversation is a nonprofit news, uh, online news outlet where uh, specialists contribute to it for a non-specialist audience. And they cover a range of issues from politics to the economy to health, religion, environment, and so on. And this is the conversation that you were talking about, this yes. resource? So this is, uh, so, so we wrote something for mass consumption, essentially. And so anyone can go online to read pieces published in the conversation that's written by academics? By academics, yes, that's right. So it's uh, freely available. They are short pieces, and they are primarily, the idea is that it helps connect academics with a non-specialist audience. A great resource for, for all of us to, to be able to check out. Um, so walk us through your piece that you recently published in The Conversation. Uh, sure. So my piece uh, looks at four, uh, four particular countries around the world. You have Turkey, Hungary, the Philippines, and Venezuela. All four countries uh, in the last few years, um, the quality of democracy is at risk. Um, and so that has had consequences for the economic outcomes in those four countries. So we'll start with Venezuela, for instance. 
Venezuela is very interesting because as of right now, it has two individuals who claim to be presidents and they have two parliaments. Wait, you, you have two people claiming to be president? How yes. do you get to that situation? Exactly, which is why it's very interesting. So last year, 2018, we, you, had, uh, you had presidential elections and President Maduro was elected in that election. Now he succeeded Chavez in 2013, I think. Now those elections were criticized as being not uh, being free and fair by several countries around the world. Um, Venezuela also has a deep economic and, humani- uh, and humanitarian crisis. Over three million people have left over the last few years. Um, and economically, food prices have shot up, high rates of inflation, lack of jobs. Um, so you have one president who was elected in 2018. Now, one of the parliaments where the, uh, the leader of the opposition party, he declared himself as the interim president a little over a week ago. Was so, the election close? Like what what's giving the opposition leader kind of a the perspective right. that he should be the real leader? Uh, great question. So, uh, n- no, it wasn't close. In <laughs> fact, several people did not vote. Uh, you know, the uh, the president was uh, his polling numbers were very low. However, um, uh, there were opposition uh, actors who didn't even run for election, saying the elections were just a sham. Um, so he won the election, a small sort of segment of the population voted, uh, and this is why you have um, the interim president, who's the leader of the opposition in the parliament. He declared himself as the president, saying that the current president has failed the country, there are economic problems, humanitarian problems. Clearly, the current president cannot address them, so there's need for someone else to be in office. United States, um, several countries in Latin America um, and around the world, they support the interim president. However, countries like Russia and China, uh, they still support uh, the current president. Oh, interesting. So you've got different countries around yes. the world taking different perspectives in this um, issue of which president is the legitimate president. Right. And then the same thing applies to the two parliaments, right? So one parliament that was elected where the opposition um, uh, gained several seats, but more recently, uh, President Maduro, he created his own parliament. (laughs) Um, And uh, this other parliament does not have any checks on the executive branch. He has also cracked down on opposition uh, forces within the country and tried to curb the powers of the judicial branch as well. Wow, this just sounds like a mess. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds very interesting. So is there any plan to resolve this or they're just going to continue with their dual president system until, I guess, forever? I, I don't know. I mean, your guess is as good as mine because yeah. things are changing as we speak every day. And it, it, it depends as to what other actors outside countries may or may not do about it. So, for instance, President Trump has said that if President Maduro doesn't step down, he may consider sending troops to Venezuela. Um, but note that not all countries are on board with the interim president either. So countries like China and Russia, they think that the current president should stay. The interim president, you know, he hasn't won an election, so he shouldn't claim himself to be president. Wow. Um, And so in this instance, like the Democratic backsliding type of measurement, what would be is it 
what 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 are you using in your research to kind of evaluate a democracy? Um, in terms of so it backsliding is something that happens over time. Okay. So you don't see it overnight. It's not a coup that today you're a democracy, there's a coup, and now you're a non-democracy. Backsliding happens over several years. And this is what we see not just in Venezuela, but also in Hungary, Turkey, and the Philippines as well. Um, uh, in, in, and it's not just one segment of democracy or one aspect of democracy that hurts. Um, authoritarian leaders use a range of tactics to entrench their uh, hold over power. So it may include um, having elections, not free and fair, cracking down on the opposition, replacing the current judges with your cronies. Um, and so there's no one uh, sort of strategy that is used. It's, it's really a range of strategies that have been used. But so there's a few different elements that we can use to kind of evaluate the quality or whether a democracy is actually a democracy. Yes, because democracy is really so many things, right? So many things go into making a country a democracy. Um, and it's interesting to see, though, that we we do see similarities across these countries. So even in Turkey, Hungary, we see uh, leaders, their prime ministers, presidents cracking down on the opposition, making the legislature or the parliament weaker, making the judicial uh, system weaker, um, and making it so that people are unable to express their views freely. Interesting. Oh, well, this is the Big Tent on Radio Boise. We're going to return after a brief break, so please don't go anywhere. This is DJ Tigas, host of African Rhythms, bringing you the hottest in African soca and reggae. From the sounds of the old to the sounds of the new, Every Saturday from 1 to 3, right here on Radio Boise. All right. Welcome back to the Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler, and I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler. And we are joined by special guest, Nisha Bellinger, um, all of us from the Bo- from Boise State University. Anisha, you mentioned that you, in this recent piece in the conversation, you are looking at the effects of democratic backsliding. And so what type of effects um, are you particularly interested in evaluating? Right. Um, So in this particular piece, we look at the economic effects of democratic backsliding. And then more specifically, we are looking at the effect on uh, economic growth and foreign direct investments. In other words, um, foreigners or foreign actors investing into these countries. And we argue that backsliding adversely affects the economy or hurts the economy. And this is what we see in in uh, all uh, three countries, Venezuela, Turkey, and Hungary, where the economy is, has either stopped growing or it's growing very slowly. Um, Foreign investors, um, when there's backsliding, it makes investors nervous uh, in the sense that if there's instability within the country, um, then that is that could be a potential threat for foreign, foreign investors. And so we see investments going down and we witness this trend across these three countries as well. But Philippines is interesting. And this is where we contrast the three with Philippines, because even though 
the president there um, has initiated this war on drugs, but really he's used it to crack down on his critics in the country. So you have backsliding, but we don't see the adverse effects on the economy. And one of the reasons that we talk about in the piece is because Philippines still has a parliament that is intact with opposition parties there. So the big difference between the first three countries, Venezuela, Turkey, Hungary, versus the Philippines is that Philippines opposition actors still have an important role to play. The legislature or, or the parliament still has an important role to play. And really having a parliament that has uh, that plays an active role in policymaking is important for economic growth. So Philippines hasn't really witnessed adverse effects on its economy, in, either in terms of the economy slowing down or foreign investors fleeing away. But we certainly see that in the other three countries. That's interesting. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit more about the infor- uh, the foreign investment part of this? Like, why like why would that be important for some of these countries? I, I don't think we necessarily think about foreign investment being a huge deal for you know the United States because I guess we are the foreign investors. Yeah. Uh, but for a lot of these, I don't want to call them third world countries. That might not be accurate. But um, some of these countries with smaller economies, I, I mean, these foreign investments are, are pretty important, correct? Yes. So foreign foreign investments are especially important because, relatively speaking, the cost of production in these countries is. Lower, labor is cheaper. Uh, so, uh, so for instance, companies from here are they think about investing in other parts of the world because they can produce a certain commodity at a cheaper cost. For instance, however, if that country is going through a period of political crisis where things are uncertain, because you have a leader who's making far-reaching changes within the country, is cracking down on the opposition, people are fighting back or taking to the streets that just doesn't create for a stable environment for any foreign investor. And that threatens the economy. Uh, if they stop investing, jobs are not being created, uh, they can't contribute to the tax base. And so overall, then again, it, in turn, it would hurt the economy as well. And presumably, I mean, it harms the citizens of those countries. Yes. Especially, you know, if they are able to employ a lot of people, uh, lack of jobs, um, and then more sort of more generally speaking, if you're looking at protests or action on the streets turning violent, then you have actual uh, actual destruction of property. All that taken together just worsens the situation for uh, investors who may be interested. Is there a threat of like citizen unrest or uprising in these types of situations? Uh, Yes. I mean, in all these cases, we see um, societal actors uh, taking to the streets, especially in uh, in um, in Venezuela, for instance, the situation is much more serious because food prices have just shot up. The Ministry of Defense is in charge of bringing food, important, important, importing food and selling it to the citizens, but they are selling them at exorbitantly high prices. Mm. So all the more reason for citizens to complain that the government has clearly failed them. And we see similar uh, sort of um, actions on ground activity in other countries for a variety of other reasons. Interesting. So is there, I mean, what's kind of the goal um, for these countries to try to strengthen and reestablish the democracy? Like, where do we go from here once we get to this point of kind of the deterioration of democracy? 
Right. The goal is, would depend on who you're asking. If you're talking to an authoritarian leader, the goal is to just entrench his hold over power. Uh, now, of course, that comes at a price. To the extent that it's going to hurt the economy, that might threaten their rule, uh, their, their hold o- over power in the future. So it really remains to be seen what's going to happen. Citizens, on the other hand, they, you know, there, there have been protests in all four countries because the government is cracking down on the opposition, on civil society. Um, and it, it remains to be seen what is going to happen. Generally speaking, I feel like in in comparative politics, research and international relations, you know, there's a big question on the effect of democracy for citizens and if democracy is is good, like if it's a desired goal for citizens. And is this an area where like having a democracy would be helpful for these citizens or if if it turns more authoritarian, would that potentially bring benefits? I mean, all these countries have been democracies in in the past. So Turkey was well on its way. I mean, it was doing quite well before the failed coup that happened a few years ago. And since then, in terms of democracy, that's been uh, it hasn't been looking very good. Philippines has also sort of fluctuated between being a democracy to a semi-democracy or a partial democracy. Hungary, more recently, with the rise of the current prime minister over the last few years, so it hasn't happened overnight, but you have a center-right party in Hungary. And since the party has gained more and more power in the parliament through elections, um, we do see the government also cracking down on the opposition. To the extent, I would say, the leaders can satisfy the economic needs of their citizens, uh, we may not see too much of a revolt. For instance, Singapore is a great example. Non-democracy, extremely wealthy country, high levels of economic growth, high foreign investment. Singapore, several years ago, was also rated as one of the happiest countries in the world. Oh, interesting. So it's not like people are only happy in democracies. There are people who are happy in non-democracies as well. Um, But Singapore is also economically a very strong country. Sure. So, you know, that that economic strength may bring along an okay, you know, being more okay with not with that authoritarian type of approach. But I should note Singapore has a parliament, has opposition parties in the parliament, and the government has been opening up more and more in recent years to include the opposition forces. So they have creatively found a way to pacify the opposition keep a strong economy to make sure that the citizens don't take to the streets. That's interesting. Um, so do you have future, are you kind of going to continue with this research, looking at some different factors or? Uh, yes. And so one of the um, avenues of future research that I'm, I'll am i be looking at in the near future is to look at the consequences of democratic backsliding sort of globally on health outcomes. Oh, interesting. Great. Well, thank you for sharing all that great information. We're going to take a break, um, but please continue to listen to us here on Radio Boise.
All right. Welcome back to the Big Tent on Radio Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler here with Luke Fowler and Nisha Ballinger. And Nisha, even though she studies international relations, is a huge fan of American politics. Yes. And I just want to say I am fascinated with American politics. And I was just telling Jackie that I may enjoy it more than my research in some ways. (laughs) Which is great because she's going to join us for a conversation about the Democratic presidential primary, which so far we've managed to not really discuss yet. Uh, I think that's actually been by design because it's so chaotic. So, Yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, so are there any particular candidates you two are interested in or interested to see how it plays out in this process? Well, um, I don't have a clear favorite or anyone that I'm particularly following. But more generally, I think what is exciting is just the diversity of candidates in terms of race, uh, gender, sort of background, and on a much of much lighter note, in terms of dietary preferences, because Cory Booker is vegan. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so I, I wonder, uh, particularly with all these people kind of announcing themselves for the Democratic primary uh, this early, uh, if it's going to be the same thing that we saw you know, a few years ago with the Republican primary, where it just ends up being so many people on stage. We have tier one <laughs> and tier two candidates. And the winner of the nomination isn't really the majority winner. It's just like the plurality winner. Uh, and it's just like whoever, you know, divided up the, the vote the least. Um, and so that's one thing that, that I concern because I not to name names, but I think that did not work out for the Republican nominee very well in a lot of ways, um, or at least for the Republican Party overall. Well, but, it was definitely like a Republican, um, like elites within the Republican Party. The, Trump was not their preference. Yeah. Uh, but with that said, uh, who I'm particularly intrigued with is uh, Sherrod Brown out of Ohio. Oh, yeah. Uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, because I think he's probably the most established politician who's announced so far. I mean, he has... I don't know if there is a presidential resume or presidential profile because there's a lot of diversity, but I think he is the one, and I guess Trump really blew all of that away. Um, but he's the one I think that looks the most from his, uh, that way in, on his background. But the other part is that you know where Trump really won the election in 2016 was in the Midwest, um, and Sherrod Brown's from Ohio, and he's very very popular there. And so I, I wonder if you know him stepping onto that stage is is really you know he can do he could be very successful in a general election because of some of his attributes. He certainly has a lot of potential. And I think if Joe Biden were to step in, I think both of between the two uh, voters may already they have a hard decision on their hands because a lot, we have a lot of progressives. But with Brown, perhaps you have someone who's a little bit moderate and can perhaps then speak to the Midwest better. Um, it remains to be seen if Joe Biden were to step in. And I, I wonder what you both think about the two of them, yeah. Well, I was actually reading a, uh, an article about uh, Sherrod Brown on BuzzFeed this week. Uh, and you know, it was very <laughs> Is that your regular news source, Luke? Uh, you know what? I go on for the quizzes, and every <laughs> once in a while they catch me with the news. So. Uh, but, you know, the the one of the interesting things was they were talking about some, uh, like, Democratic power players there in Iowa uh, heading into the uh, caucuses. And they said that nobody from Joe Biden's camp has really started doing anything mm-hmm. in Iowa. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, the other thing the article really talked about was how much uh, criticism, how much flack uh, 
Brown is getting from the left wing of the party. Um, basically, it, I mean, where he's really running into it is that he's not progressive enough, mm-hmm. um, that he's uh, really a moderate on things like Medicare for all. Um, and he doesn't want to take that step not at least in the in the short term so i, I think that's really where he's going to run into problems is is the the democratic parties move way to the left uh particularly after the 2016 elections and brown just might not be in the center of the party anymore yeah that, i mean and the effect of you know bernie sanders run in in 2000 um uh, 16 yeah. oh my gosh um, really did push the Democratic Party to have yeah. some of these progressive policies are are really desired by voters and so yeah it may be a poor timing for Brown Amy Klobuchar I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing her name but I, I mispronounce name, people's okay. name on the show all the time it so. sounded right to me okay <laughs> so she mentioned day before on air that she's going to make an announcement in a few days and now she is from Wisconsin Minnesota. she's from Minnesota so between her and Brown I wonder if they would try to sort of make the primary more moderate in a sense, although I think she is also quite progressive. Well, you do have some interesting, you know, candidates potentially canceling each other out a little bit or struggling, because I think Cory Booker and Kamala Harris have some similar um, overlap in areas of of issues of interest, um, background, some other things, and so how people like that compete against one another will be interesting to see. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting, those early primary states or the caucus states, Iowa, South Carolina, uh, New Hampshire, I mean, the to see, I mean, essentially who survives that first month, month and a half of the primary season, because uh, it tends to be those candidates that move on because the candidates that run out of money have to drop out. So, I mean, I think this is really going to come down to fundraising for a lot of these candidates. And I mean, and going back to the debate, uh, how are they going to accommodate so many people? Yeah, they'll do something like what they did for the Republicans. Which was that two-tier. So right. you had that certain threshold of polling in order to get on the main stage or you're on the other stage. And yeah, that is problematic if you don't make it to that main debate. Or we could just do what we hear, do here uh, at the Radio Boys and just yell over each other. And whoever gets through is the person that's right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, that may happen regardless, <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, I we still have a way, like a good number of people have already announced, and yet there's still more Democrats who could announce for the primary. I, I am intrigued by the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, I think he would, uh, Pete, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce <laughs> his last name because I totally cannot. Um, he would make the youngest president, he's 37 years old, uh, war um, veteran, a Rhodes Scholar, served in Afghanistan, I, I think, um, openly gay. So you really have, uh, for if Joe Biden were to decide to run from him, so you have someone who is in his late 30s, like a lot of sort of range like in terms diversity. of age as well, which is very interesting. Well, I think there's you can criticize our, our president in a lot of different ways. But I think the one positive that has come out of his candidacy was opening up the idea of who has the pedigree to run for president. Because it seemed like for the longest time that we assumed that you had to be a governor or a senator, that you had to have certain background and you had to meet kind of certain criteria. But I think Trump blew that all away um, when you look at what he has done and his kind of non-traditional. Um, I guess profile so I think that it, that's in a lot of ways opened the door for a lot of non-traditional candidates and I mean hopefully that'll be successful and we'll continue to see that because I, I mean I, 
I, I think that's good for us, at least to entertain that as a democracy, that you don't have to come out of elite schools. You don't necessarily have right. to be this career politician to get elected. Well, and that's one thing that, you know, may be helping have a more diverse pool from the Democrats this year is the traditional idea of what qualifications are could be could prevent um, people of color, women from competing in the same way. And so that may be helping open up a more diverse pool as well. Yeah, um, I think, you know, we've this is just the start. Like, we've got a long ways to go in this primary. So, Nisha, I hope that you'll come on more and talk oh, to, sure. to us more about presidential electoral politics. Yeah, let's just uh, note that, I mean, the first primary is, what, a year away? <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's going to be a very, very long couple of years for yeah. all of us, uh, especially if you're a politics junkie. Yeah, well, we, I'm sure we will be discussing it more um, as we go along. Well, thank you so much, Nisha, for joining us today. We hope you'll come back and join us in the future. Thank you for having me. And uh, Luke, great job today. Nicely uh, done. You know, I don't think I made any mistakes, but Wayne might tell me that uh, none of this has gone in the air. We might be talking to ourselves for all I know, <laughs> so we'll see. Hopefully not. Well, thank you so much for listening to us here at the Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM. Um, we will be back next week, so please come and join us.